morning. Our sermon text comes from two passages. The first is Deuteronomy 5, 1 through 11. That's on page 150. If you need a Bible or if you know someone who needs one, please take one of the black ones you find in the seat in front of you. We'll begin with Deuteronomy 5, 1 through 11, page 150. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood before the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath, or what is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And then Ezekiel 36, 16 through 21. That will be on page 724. Ezekiel 36, 16. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways became before me like the uncleanness of a woman in her minstrel impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. In that, people, in that people said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Thank you, Megan, for reading. Brian and Iva for leading us in singing this morning. Aaron, thank you for serving us up there this morning, brother. Appreciate you so much. I want to thank you also as a church. Uh, you might not even know it, but you sent me to practice at preaching at the Simeon Trust Workshop in Graham, Texas. This last week, I was there from Tuesday until Friday, leading a small group of eight preachers trying to get better at preaching the book of Revelation, uh, as if I know how to, how to do that. Uh, church, you also sponsored the candidate pastor at Fitzhugh Baptist Church. We've been praying for Fitzhugh, hoping that they have a pastor. Our cohort of pastors have, uh, who are helping Fitzhugh 
have recommended a pastor to them, and uh, we sponsored that pastor at Simeon Trust this last week as well so that he could grow in preaching. So thank you in investing not only in me as your pastor, but in so many pastors from all over Texas and in hopefully the pastor uh, who might become the lead pastor at Fitzhugh Baptist Church. Very glad to have been in Revelation all week. Very, very glad to be back with you all here in Austin and to be in these passages. The title of today's sermon is In His Name. In His Name. We're beginning a four-week series here at Millwood Baptist Church. It's a way for our church to revisit foundational understandings of what it means to be a local church. We never progress so far that the most fundamental things don't remain fundamental to us. doesn't matter how tall you build your house. If your foundation is cracked, it will fall. We want to look at foundational things in our church. We're beginning today to look at how God's name is on his people. Next week, we'll look at the doctrine of conversion, how God's people come to bear God's name and become his people in the new covenant. The following two weeks, we'll look at how we care for God's name corporately as God's people. And the last week, on how we bear God's name individually, each of us in our own righteousness in Christ. Today, we begin an overarching look at the importance of God's name born by his people. The first of four is in his name. Let's pray. God, thank you for today, for your grace in the Lord Jesus Christ to us. We pray for your grace to us to give us your spirit. We pray for your grace to give us your word. As your word is preached, we pray that your spirit would work, that we might come to worship and love you, and that we might understand and be more concerned what it means to be in Jesus Christ and bear the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We pray that as you come to inspect the foundation of this church, that you would help us see where we might turn in heart, in life, hand, and mind to love and care and revere your name. the foundation of everything you do. And we pray that it would be so now as your word is preached for your glory and our joy, in Christ's name, amen. My hope today is that you would grasp the weight of our place as the bearers of God's name. 
God will be glorified through his covenant people who bear his name. He will be. It is not an option to him. It is not a question. God will be glorified through his covenant people who bear his name. He will be. Either by his discipline, because they tarnish his name, or by blessing, because they love and obey him. I want to massage this into your heart for the next few moments that we have together. God will be glorified through his covenant people who bear his name, either by discipline because they tarnish his name, or by blessing because they love and obey him. But he will be glorified through his covenant people. This is a massive gravitational pull in everything that God does. Everything that God does. This is not just a matter of a few tips on how to live your life, on things to do this week. It is defining our church's relationship to God, a Christian's relationship to God. Think about the recent news of the sun. I don't know if you've seen this, if you are aware of what's happening with the sun right now, but apparently the sun is about to, I don't even understand science enough to know what it's actually saying, but it's about to either turn upside down or inside out, one or the other, or I think both maybe, at least magnetically. The gravitational center of our entire galaxy is about to turn its negative pole into a positive pole and its positive pole into a negative pole. Now, when I heard this, I thought, this is the end. This is how it happens. Here, we are going to be here at the end. But apparently this happens every 11 years. And it can create solar flares powerful enough to knock out power grids on the earth. This happens every 300,000 years for the earth. The earth's magnetic poles flip, apparently. This is a picture of what it's like to get the truths of God's glory into your heart. It is shifting the entire gravitational pull of our entire relationship to everything else around us. Because at the center of the entire universe and world and the church and me and you is a God who has the entire existence gravitationally working to him, from him, out from him, and the relationship is his glory in everything that he does. That's the defining, that's like gravity to God. Everything he does is for his name and for his glory. Everything. Everything. Most importantly, his people. His people bear his name in every moment of redemptive history. It is paramount for the people of God to know God and to know what concerns God the most in his relationship with them. 
or us? What do you think matters most to God? What motivates God? What does God care most about at Millwood Baptist Church? At the center of God is His concern for His own name, His reputation on the earth. And God expresses this time and time and time again through redemptive history and in our scriptures through Moses and the prophets and through His own Son. That the motivating factor for all He does is His own glory, His reputation on the earth among the nations. And God is unyielding. In this priority, we could no more shift God from this priority than we could nudge the sun over out of our way. It is the center of everything that God does. God's name is his motivation for what he does in redemptive history. God's name is his motivation for what he does in redemptive history. I want you to read Deuteronomy 5 again, that Megan read for us. See how the narrative of salvation from God's people in Exodus, God saves his people from Pharaoh, brings them through the Red Sea. In the book of Deuteronomy, word means the second giving of the law, God is bringing his people into the land that he had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now Moses, that he would give them. And he is regurgitating, he's requoting the Ten Commandments that he had given them back at Mount Sinai in Exodus 20. Now, right before they go into the land, God is saying, Let me remind you of the commandments as my people. Deuteronomy chapter 5, just read again verse 3. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. What does that mean to take the Lord's name in vain? It doesn't mean not to use God's name when you step on a toy in the dark in the middle of the night. Certainly, I don't think we should use God's name that way. Or when you're in traffic. That's not what the verse is talking about, how you speak God's name, per se, when you are frustrated. But it is a warning a command for Israel not to take God's name in name only. Don't say to God, yes, we will be your people. We will take on your name and you'll be our God and we'll be your people and then walk out the door as if nothing ever happened. And just, just imagine going to a wedding and they say, I do. Do you? Yes, I do. And then you don't. So you just leave. You go out, you, you leave the wedding with your buddies to go play football. That's not what, it, that's not what that covenant means. 
I was going to make a joke, but I think it probably wouldn't be appropriate. This is the relation between God and his covenant people. It's the basis on which he relates to his people. God sees his people as his people on the earth, among the nations, as the ones who bear his name. In the time of Moses and the kings of the nations, people were constantly connected to gods. We don't think like this too much today as nations. But the Philistines had Dagon, their god. The Assyrians had Asherah. The Ammonites had Molech, and so on. And Yahweh, the I Am, made Abraham and his descendants his people. He took a people who were not a people, who were no one, who were idolaters, and said, that's going to be my people. And he called Abraham and made a covenant with him and turned Abraham and his descendants into his people, therefore attaching his name to that people. And God's relationship with that people is, you bear my name. So the whole law could be summarized, you should be holy as I am holy, because I am your God and you are my people, you bear my name. Thus, God says, the combining covenant of the theology of the first half and the practical second half of the Ten Commandments is, don't take my name in vain. Don't just do it in name only. Why? Because God is seeking to make himself known to the whole world through his covenant people who bear his name. It's one way that he's making himself known. So every aspect of Israel's relationship to God is about them bearing the name of God to one another and to the world. Just a few examples. The land and the temple itself was to bear the name of God. God said he was going to put his name and make Israel and his temple his habitation where he puts his name. So that when people look to the temple and look to Israel, they go, that's Yahweh's land. That's Yahweh's temple. And those are his people. The priests, likewise, are chosen, Deuteronomy 18.5, chosen out of the people to minister to the people in the name of the Lord. as his representatives to them. Prophets, likewise, are to prophesy in the name of the Lord. And if you prophesy, we see in Deuteronomy 18, and you say, I'm prophesying in God's name. I'm giving you God's words. I'm telling you God's message. And it comes to be found out you are actually not speaking for God. What are they to do? Kill that prophet. You don't come and talk in God's name and then lie. And God told his people to kill that prophet. What is the basis for the authority of Israel in all of these things? It is God's name. This one commandment, the third commandment then, not to take God's name in vain, describes the relationship between God and Israel, that they bear his name as his covenant people. I will be your God. You will be my people. You will bear my name. Do not take my name in name only. God's chief concern in his covenant with his people is his name. God blesses and God curses his own people based on their representation of his name. When we come to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, God again adds warnings to Israel to take special care in bearing his name. And listen to the severity in Deuteronomy chapter 
28, verses 58 through 63. Deuteronomy 28 puts you on page 137, 36, 37 in your house Bibles. Some of the last words of Moses to the people who have taken on God's name and are about to go take his name among the nations. Deuteronomy 28, the Lord says, If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions. Afflictions severe and lasting, and sicknesses grievous and lasting. And he will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt of which you are afraid, and they will cling to you. Every sickness also and every affliction that is not recorded in the book of this law, the Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed. Whereas you were a numerous, as numerous as the stars of the heaven, you shall be left few in number, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. If you're going to take the name of God, and instead of honoring God, and worshiping Him, and obeying Him, and trusting Him, God will move to protect His name. Israel moves from Egypt. They take the name of the Lord and covenant with Moses. And they do exactly what God had warned them not to do. They took his name in vain. As people from generation to generation, they did not honor God. They did not fear God's name. They sinned by disobeying God and they sinned by worshiping other gods. This is why God took them out of the land that bore his name, because they had filled it with sin and idolatry. This is why God sent prophets of judgment in his name. This is why God destroyed the very temple which bore his name, because they had brought other idols into it. Ezekiel describes it. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, the land that had God's name on it, they defiled it in their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through their countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. 
and that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But, verse 21, I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. That describes the history of Israel from the Jordan River, the book of Deuteronomy, to Ezekiel and the end of 2 Kings and even Daniel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. What happened? Why did God destroy Jerusalem? Why did God take the people out? Why did God allow nearly all of the Israelites to be killed or taken into captivity into a foreign land where God's name was not given? Answer, verse 20, they profaned God's holy name. Why did God do what he did? Verse 21, I had concern for my holy name. Dear church, do we grasp the severity of God's people bearing the name of God? Do we recognize God's own ambition and commitment to his own name? The destruction of Israel and Jerusalem was not a pretty sight. This is a PG-13 verses. There are worse Therefore, as I live, Ezekiel 5, describing the destruction as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will withdraw. My eye will not spare. I will have no pity. A third of you shall die by pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. A third who die will be fall by the sword all around you. And a third that die, I will scatter to the winds and will unsheathe the sword after them. And so Babylon came. God was willing to take life for the sake of his name. Well, why in the world... Would you love God's name if he is so severe in regards to it? Why would we love it? Does this mean that we should just cower in constant fear like a wife abused for her by her husband? Just runs around always afraid to make a mistake because of what God might say, what he might do? how he might come after me? Is that our only relationship with God? How is it that we might actually love God's name? I could preach a 10-week series on this. It's all through the Bible. But I want to say that we love God's name. And we, we are jealous for God's name and eager and protective and consider God's name precious because God saves his people for his name. 
God, his name is our joy because he saves his people for his name's sake. First. It is tempting to come to God and hear these things and think God is just a, he's just a cosmic narcissist. Up there, running around, demanding everyone praise him. You know, I want all the likes on Facebook, like God. But we don't think that way when we're seeing people rescued. We don't think when someone has been saved by a lifeguard and they get out and they cling to that lifeguard and they say, thank you for saving my life. And they go home and they say, the lifeguard saved my life. No one says, stop it. Stop praising the lifeguard. Stop it. No, it's worthy of praise. In part, in part, because he is rescued. So God's appeal to care for his name comes not only from his sovereignty and power and holiness, it also comes from his graciously electing and saving his people. God's appeal to care for his name comes not only from his sovereignty and his power and his holiness, but from graciously electing and saving his covenant people. It's even in the language of God introducing his covenants in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. I am the Lord your God. What does he want them to remember about him? I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 5, 5, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I'm not just here giving you commands because I'm looking for a people that I want to just mess with their lives and demand their worship and make them miserable and all the other nations are free. It's the exact opposite. I freed you to come bear my name in holiness and joy out of my election and salvation from you. This is the shape of both the old and the new covenants in God's relationship to his people. He first elects Abraham. He chooses him and said, you're going to be my people from all the families on the earth. He makes Abraham the first of his people and the descendants are his people. Abraham was not looking for God. He did not know God. He was unrighteous. He did not deserve God. God chose him. God made this people many, and then God saved them through Moses. God saved the people out of slavery. For 400 years, God saved them for the sake of his name, rescued them by his power, and then to his elected and saved people, he teaches them how to bear his name as his people. Know that this is God's covenant relationship with his people. He calls his people to bear his name, not on the basis only of his sovereignty and power, which are worthy, but because of his gracious election and salvation. Thus, the basis for our caring for God's name is not raw duty, but thankfulness. Why would we care about God's name being glorified to our neighbors and our city and the nations? Because he has so graciously chosen and saved us in Christ. 
thankfulness for God's grace is our deep down motivation for his name. God, though he disciplined Israel, he had made a covenant with them that attached his name to them, and he would not let his name be ruined by them. So although God's name was the basis for destroying Israel, his name is also the basis for graciously not entirely destroying the Israelites. Hear this difference. Though God's name is the basis for destroying Israel, his name is also the basis for graciously not entirely destroying the Israelites because he had made a covenant with them and put his name on them. So though he disciplines them, he will not entirely cut them off. God says this in Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. This has been a passage that has been in my bones since college. When I read it, it has just continued to come back and back to my mind and shift me back from selfishness as a husband, redirection as a pastor, to hear God talk about his grace to his people in his name. Isaiah 48, 9-11, For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For my name's sake, I defer the anger that I've been pouring out and that I will pour out on you through Babylon. For the sake of my praise, I am restraining my anger from you. Because my praise is at stake, so I restrain my anger. That I may not cut you off. If it were not for God's name, God would have just cut Israel off as well. Behold, God says, I, in sending you out, have refined you, but not as silver, I have tried tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? I will not give my glory to another. The only thing keeping God from entirely and utterly destroying his covenant people was concern for his name. I will discipline you, people, out of concern for my name. You, you've tarnished my name with your idolatry, and yet I will not entirely cut you off because I've connected my name to you, and I said that I would be faithful. God does everything that he does for his own name's sake. God's people are saved and then preserved for the glory of God's name. And I want you to see how this is our hope in Jesus Christ. Go with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 14. Everything that God does in salvation toward us in the Trinitarian manner, Father, Son, and Spirit, is to the praise of God. It's for Him. The end of God's salvation in Christ to us is not our salvation. God did not save us for the sake of us being saved. God saved us to the praise of his glorious grace. That's the end. See it as the end of what God does 
and Father and Son and Spirit in Ephesians chapter 1. See this in the Father's electing grace. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the focus in verse 1 through, or excuse me, 3 through 6. God the Father, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us, like Abraham, like he chose us in him with the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. To what end? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. He chose us before the foundation of the world to be blameless and adopted to the praise of his glorious grace, just like Abraham. And look in verse 7 through 11 and see primarily what God has done through the Son. In him, that's Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. God has given forgiveness of sin. If you're here today and you're wondering, how can I possibly have a right relationship with God? It's that he would forgive you. That he would forgive you. We're all created in the image of God. We've all sinned. But God is willing to forgive you, not on the basis of your own worthiness, but on the basis of Jesus' blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses through his blood, according to the riches of God's grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things to the counsel of his will, so that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. So the Father has chosen to the praise of his glory. The Son has bled for our sins to the praise of his glory. And look at verse 13. In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed. If you were a Christian trusting in Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Father has elected, the Son has saved, and the Spirit has sealed to the praise of his glorious grace. We are saved to God's praise. We're saved that his name would be resounded through our singing and our life and our marriages, and our homes, and our finances, and everything that we do sings thankfulness to God that in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we were saved. So our motivation for caring about God's name is not merely His power, not merely raw duty to His sovereignty, but that in Christ He has chosen to save us. How can we be frustrated by the centrality of God's name when it is the basis for our salvation? If God were not jealous for his name, he would not have unconditionally saved those in Christ. He would not have 
unconditionally redeemed us by the blood of Jesus Christ and sealed us by his spirit. When we look to the cross of Jesus Christ, where Jesus shed his blood and wore a crown of thorns and water poured out of his side, we see there God cleansing his people from every nation in order that his name would be known among the nations as the one who sent his son to die for sinners who come to bear his name. So it is a quite of a mixture, I think, of a weight that is put on us to be careful about bearing God's name. And our motivation comes from the fact that God saved us. Forgives us, and there, there goes the relief of all the weight of God's name. Because he has gotten a name for himself by saving us from our sins in Christ. Let us make God's concern for his name our concern. Millwood Baptist Church, February 2024. Let us, if we must again, repent and make our concern God's name. And that being the foundational, gravitational pull by which we think about everything in our whole life, in our church, forever. Essentially, this is all repenting. This is all repenting. All repenting is coming back from, that was not for God, that was for me. That was not trusting God, that was trusting me. That was not getting pleasure in God. That was getting pleasure in the world. That did not bring glory to God's name. Therefore, I repent and I don't want to do that anymore. Let God's name undergird every motivation for your prayer. What are you praying and why? What are you praying for God to do? If God is so constantly, unyieldingly committed to his own name, well, friends, we can be confident that when we pray, in that vein, God is eager to bless. So pray to that end. And test your prayer. Can, can I add for the glory of your name to everything I pray? If not, why not? Let us make God's name the passion of your heart. By passion, I mean things you get excited and angry about. What do you get angry about and why? Why does it bother you so much? Is it because God's name is at stake? Or is it something slightly lower on the rung of importance in the history of the world? Let us check that our wishes and our plans and our ideas and our complaints and our praises are all tested of the glory that it brings to God's name. You can pray things like Psalm 106, verse 47, Save us, O Lord our God. Gather us from the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory to your praise. God, take care of me. Protect us because your name is at stake. How many prophets and kings have prayed such things? Pray Psalm 115, verse 
One, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. That's our prayer, that you would get glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness to us. We want you to give glory because we've remembered the gospel of your love and grace to us. This, is, this, is, this ought to be our, our prayer and our passion for our church. We don't want the nations to go, where's their God? God's in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. We, God, we want you to get glory for your name. Whatever it might take. Knowing what he is willing to do for his name. This must be our heart, church, always and forever. Not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name. Give glory. Let me just encourage you a couple of ways. Judge everything by the glory it brings to God's name. There are a lot of things to be sad about in the world, and a lot of things that deserve our sadness. Things that we've lost, things that aren't the same. People who've passed away, people who have moved. You could be sad about money. You could be sad about all kinds of things. And you have to consider what it was like for the people of Israel to watch the Babylonians come into the city that they loved, their homes, and think, this, this can't be right. What is, where's God? What does this mean? Well, why isn't God stopping them from destroying the temple? Why, why are so many people dead? Why are so many people sick? Why is this happening? Don't judge our sadness, only simply by our sadness, about what might be God doing for His glory. It's possible that the things which actually make you happy are abhorrent to God, because there are pleasures which actually replace God. Being happy does not mean inherently we are bringing glory to God. Perhaps you're happy and content, and it just seems like everything is going fine. Meanwhile, God is furious. This happens all through the Bible. We've read this, men, we've read this on Wednesday and Friday, that Solomon's heart went after other gods because he had followed foreign women and married them. And what does it say when God came to speak to Solomon about this? It says, God was angry. I have a feeling Solomon wasn't really feeling like God was angry at him when he's having fun, when he's got all these wives. But eventually came to find out God is angry about this. 1 Corinthians 10, 6-7 says how, how Israel behaved is a lesson for us. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6-7, These things took place as examples for us when they rejected God, that we might not desire evil like they did. Do not be idolaters, Paul says to the church, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This means they had their food and they got up every night and they just went and had a festival. All the while, their days were filled with idolatry. They're totally blind. They're happy, but they're totally blind to how they were tarnishing God's name. Ignorant and unfeeling to the fact. Don't trust either your sadness as the test that God is not being glorified in anything in our church or in your life or in your home or your loss or your affliction. God may be glorified through those things. He may be doing things on purpose to get glory. And don't trust your happiness. Everything's fine. Everything's good. No, nothing's really bothering me. So God must be really happy with me. Don't trust those things. 
Rather, look to see what God has commanded you. Make God the portion of your heart. Test your heart. Test your life. Test your thoughts and your plans to make sure my emotions and my dreams and my plans are in alignment with God and His glory. And trust that God will save and discipline for His name. Judge everything by God's bringing glory to His name and trust that God will save and discipline for His name. This is going to happen. You cannot move God from this aim. There's a lot of unknowns in the world. But know this, that God works to keep His name honored through His covenant people one way or the other. God said, for my own sake, For my own sake, I do it. God is keeping a remnant in Israel, not for their sake, but for his own. Do not interpret events or progressions in your life by the measure of anything other than the name of God, by obedience to commands of God. If you are walking in faithfulness to the Lord, he is pleased with it. God is not concerned that your life has not borne more fruit, per se that you're not a super-Christian. God doesn't look at our church and get disappointed that we're not something that we're not unless what we're doing does not bring Him glory. Even a small church can bring God great glory. God will not let His name be profaned. Confess your sins and your hearts to God. Be thankful to God for sending His own Son to die for our sins. Are things good? Are things bad? For whom? For you? For God? If we must weep, let us weep because of God's name. If there are things to rejoice, let us rejoice for the purpose of God's name on the earth. Trust that this is what God is doing to the very end. Sometimes we feel like drastic changes can be disillusioning as to what God is doing in the world, doing in our life. I mean, my my beloved 15-year-old daughter just got her driver's permit last Monday. You want to talk about negative, positive poles turning, you know, one to the other? I mean, like my whole life and heart just got turned upside down. There's a constant. And it, God will work for His glory. He will somehow. Someone sent me a, a podcast this last week from. It's produced by Heath Lambert at First Baptist Jacksonville, Florida. And there's just something encouraging about their extremes. I think it's like eight or ten episodes or so. I'm not finished with it yet. First Baptist Jacksonville, Florida, was basically the First Baptist Church of America from the 80s to the mid-2000s. They had risen in the 90s to 17,000 members. And they held 10 blocks of downtown Jacksonville, Florida, of which they comprised building after building of Sunday school and teaching and an auditorium that rivaled football stadiums. Preachers' conferences from all over 
All over the world, preachers would come to their preachers conference every year, full orchestra, full choir, full seats, get there early to, to get a seat. And by 2017, their numbers had come down to just 3,000. Can you imagine what 3,000 people look like in a 20,000-person auditorium? 3,000 people! And they show up and they go, no one's here. <laughs> Everyone's gone. So they sold nine blocks of their 10 blocks in 2020 or 21. Several members recount that they had begun to memorialize their church. Almost to the point of worshiping it. We loved its size. We loved its impact. We loved it. And we began to think about the things that we had done for God rather than what God has done for us. And praise those things and love those things. You surely cannot look at First Baptist Jacksonville and think only what an unfortunate series of events. And in some ways, God might not have been happy with them. And that now, the story goes, God seems to be very happy with First Baptist Jacksonville. Not many. They have not grown back to 17,000. They're preaching the truth. There's unity. There's peace. There's joy. There are baptisms. There's growth. God will build and tear down and rebuild for his glory in his name over and over and over and the disciples to me and you and every church until the Lord Jesus returns. The Lord is unyieldingly committed to the glory of his name. Let us make that our concern as well. Let's pray. God, thank you for your kindness to give us your word. Thank you for your kindness to reveal us to ourselves. Give us a grand vision of you, O oh God, that we might have this deep down in our bones and our collective mind and heart as a church that in every season and for every decade that you might allow us to live for your name, that we would regularly continue to be pulled back to the center of your name on us. Thank you for saving us, unconditionally saving us. I pray that you would help us glorify your name in everything that we do. We love you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.